group here. And welcome to those of you who are watching online. I know we have a lot of folks who watch online or later catch the video. So we are blessed to have you. We've just had prayer time. If you need to get caught up individually on some of our prayer requests in the church, feel free to contact me or contact others in the office. Olivia Winton, uh, by the way, I'll remind us to continue to pray for her and her baby boy, Charlie. She is potentially going to be having Charlie anytime this August. And Janice Kynard is covering in the office, going to start covering in the office. And Olivia is in her last couple weeks, um, you know, on a projection where Charlie's coming in the latter part of August. So we'll see what the timing is. Reed Robertson is going to continue with our study of learning about who God is, what God is like, and tonight uh, what are sometimes referred to as the attributes of God. Reed started that discussion last time, and he continues tonight. Um, and Reed, it's all yours. So yeah, by the way, I'm uh, sick, so you'll see me. Do you want your phone, Martin? Do you want your phone? Oh. <laughs> um, you'll see me sipping tea for while I'm doing this, but um, I am. I'm fine. It's just a little, you know, allergy cold thing. Yeah, I'm good. So the only thing I'm worried about is my throat. So I'm, I'm taking care of that and I think I'll be good. But anyway, so last week we talked about um, some philosophical concepts. We started there. They're kind of essential for, for working through the classical understanding of who God is. Because the, the, the writers of the confessions, the Reformed confessions that we hold to, as well as the writers of the creeds, a thousand years before that, um, held to these philosophical concepts. And so these, you know, you, they're not strictly necessary for understanding um, God. And certainly there are other traditions that hold to different philosophical systems. But in our understanding, and this is a helpful way to understand at least our confessions and our, our way of looking at it from a Reformed perspective. So, let me get my, I saw last week it was lagging behind a little bit, so hopefully it'll be um, up there today. So, anyway, we talked about a few things. We talked about being. Uh, what being is is a combination of essence and existence, the what of a thing and the, the is of a thing, right? We use Lola as an example. What is she? She's a dog that exists, right? Did that come up? Okay. Then we also talked about analogy. Um, so we're talking about God, and we, we use these, these concepts. Um, the way that we use these concepts is not one-to-one. So when we talk about God's essence or God's existence, it's not on the same plane as our essence, as our existence. When we talk about God's love, it's not, this, it's not the same kind of love that we experience. Um, but it is love, and so it's true for us to say. We're not, we're not saying that love is meaningless, right? We're not saying that it's meaningless to speak of God's love. What we are saying that God's love is different from our love, different enough that we can't fully grasp it and fully speak of it in the same way that we speak of um, our love. We also talked about causality. Um, does anybody remember what the four causes are? Material, efficient, final, and formal. So the, we're answering the questions, what's it made of? Who made it? What's it for? And what is it? And so all these questions, we, we looked at God and we talked about how God doesn't meet those. And finally, after all of that, talking about how God is uncaused, God doesn't have causes, he's totally self-sufficient, we talked about God's aseity. So um, we're going to pick up there, we're going we're to look at 
look forward um, to God's immutability, which is God's unchangeability. But I'll remind you that, that aseity is this idea, we looked at Acts, Acts 17, that God is totally sufficient in himself. He doesn't need anything outside of himself. He doesn't depend on anything outside of himself. And so um, that's, that's totally different from, from who we are, right? We depend on others all the time. We depend on um, God ultimately for our existence, but we also depend on um, other people for our existence. We depend on um, the fact that we have parents who gave birth to us and who cared for us for our existence. God doesn't depend on any of those things. Uh, we'll also talk about dependence in a minute when we talk about simplicity. Uh, but first, let's talk about immutability. So one of, one of the implications of aseity, one of the implications of God's self-sufficiency, and here's a, this is another philosophical concept, is that God is pure act. So this is the old school way of talking about it. The, the way that you used to talk about it is to, to say that God, uh, God is pure act. Um, and we've talked about act and potency. That's the old way of talking. But what I mean by this, that God is, is pure act. So if you think about what you do, right? So if you, you probably woke up in the morning, uh, maybe took a shower, brushed your teeth, brushed your hair, made your bed. Um, maybe you got in the car and went to work. Maybe you did something around the house. So the things that you do are successive, right? You do them one after the other, right? I get up, I do one thing, and so I could change what I do, right? I could do something different. So I could wake up in the morning, and if, if my normal routine is I'm going to brush my teeth, I'm going to take a shower, I'm going to eat breakfast, or I would probably not eat breakfast after I brush my teeth, but the... We could change that, right? I could wake up in the morning, and I could say, well, I'm going to take a shower, then I'm going to eat breakfast, and then I'm going to brush my teeth, right? And so we talk about that in terms of potentiality, right? So there's a potential that I would do something different, right? Um, I could do any sort of, any number of things after I go home, right? I could um, read a book. I could eat supper, which is probably what I actually will do. Um, I could watch a movie. I could take the dog for a walk. There's any sort, all sorts of things that I could do that I could potentially do. In God, there are none of, no, there's no potentials, right? This is what we mean when we speak of God as pure act. There's, there's not anything that God could do later, right? God is always doing all things that he does. This, this may be a little bit hard to, to track with, and we'll talk about it more when we get to simplicity, but any, any change we experience in God is on the level of God's revelation to us. So, if you think about, I don't know how to erase this, but if you think about a rainstorm, right? So it's raining, it's raining. And so, there's, there's some sense in which we experience it, we experience changing God. But what we want to assert is that any change we experience in God is not actually in God, right? So if God is a rainstorm, and I put up an umbrella, right? What has changed about the rainstorm? Nothing, right? What has, what has changed is not the rainstorm itself, but my relationship with it. And so 
when God is working, when God is acting, um, he's always acting the same way. So we talk about justification. Justification is a declaration of righteousness. Well, God is always, forever, will be, and never ending, is God is declaring us righteous, right? So the, the declaration that we experience of, of righteousness is not something that um, happens at a point, at least in God's mind, but we experience it at a point. Does that make sense? So God is always, forever, declaring this thing, but when he brings us into a relationship with himself and he reveals himself to us, then we experience God differently. So it's, it's like if I were walking around in the rainstorm, it's always raining on me, but I just removed the umbrella, right? So in the same way, speaking about justification again, God is always declaring us justified. God is always declaring us righteous, but we only experience when the umbrella is removed. Does that make sense? So we follow. So there's a difference between what goes on inside God. The technical term for that is ad intra, but don't worry about that. It's the internal, what, what's going on inside the mind of God and what's going on outside of God. And so when we talk about how God is unchangeable. That's what's going on inside God. God doesn't change internally. So, by the way, this is, what, this is the kind of thing we, we think about when we, the, the Hebrew word chesed, <coughs> I can't do the chit with my throat, but <laughs> uh, it's, it's normally translated, um, at least in the, the newer translation, steadfast love. Um, the, the King James used to translate it loving kindness, but it's this like covenant faithfulness, right? Um, and it's, it's drawing on this attribute of God that God is um, never changing. And God's unchangingness does express itself in his revelation to us. Um, but that expression is coming from an attribute of God. So we say all that. But what do you do, um, for example, with passages where God changes his mind? So I can think of two off the top of my head. The first one is um, when Abraham is bargaining with God about Sodom and Gomorrah. If you remember that story. Abraham's talking to God, and, and God says, if you can find 50 good men in Sodom, then I won't destroy it. And Abraham goes down, and he looks around, and he can't find 50. If I can find, well, if you can find 10, then I won't destroy it. And eventually he gets down to one, and he says, you can find one righteous man in Sodom, I won't destroy it. Now, interestingly, Lot is in Sodom, and Lot doesn't even count as a, a righteous man. Um, but we see this kind of, it seems like a change in God's mind, Right? Where he's, he's developing something out. Did you have something? A realization by who? Uh-huh. So what? Uh-huh. Well, let's take the other one then. The other one is when um, Moses is up on Sinai, right? Mount Sinai. And the people, including Aaron, by the way, build this golden calf. And God says he wants to destroy them. He says he's going to destroy the people. They've sinned. He's not going to deal with this. But then Moses pleads with God, and um, God changes his mind, right? So that situation, the text actually says that he changes his mind versus... Um, the Lot situation is not so clear that he's um, having a change of mind, uh, but it's a similar deal. 
I'll flip to this if I can remember what uh, it's later in Exodus. written this down. Okay. <laughs> Exodus 32. So Exodus 32, um, we'll start in verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, go down, for your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. That's a significant line, by the way. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord... Why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever." The Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of, bringing on his people. So, um, relented, I believe, I may be wrong about this. I wasn't going to turn to this passage, but here we are. (laughs) But I believe that's the the Hebrew word is shuv. Is that right, Martin? Yeah. So that's that's repentance, right? There's there's a turning of the heart there. So what do you think is going on? What do you make of this? Where We've just talked about how God is unchanging, right? And the Bible certainly speaks about that in terms of God's covenant faithfulness, that he's, he's steadfast. But what do you make of a passage like this, where it seems like, at least on a first reading, that God has de- determined to do something, and then Moses asks for him to change his mind, and then he says, okay, I'll, I'll relent. I'll repent is another way to translate that, that he repented of this disaster. What do you make of that? What are your impressions? Does this pose a problem? Do you, do you see a problem here? Or is, this, um, is this something that you think harmonizes? Okay. What do you mean by our prayers have an impact on God? So, and so I get the central question though is. What is, what is changing here, right? Is, is this something changing in God? Certainly, um, 
Moses is, is the, the relationship between Moses, the relationship between Moses and God, and the relationship between the people and God has changed. But is God changing? No, right? And so we would talk about this in terms of a anthropomorphism. Um, although I think that that probably diminishes a little bit what's going on because there's a sense in which God really does repent, right? There's a sense in which God really does turn away from something he was going to do. But in another sense, and that, that's in God's external relations, but in another sense, God is totally unchanging, pure act, right? And so in the same way that um, God declares justification for all time and be outside of our creation, outside of time, God is declaring justification. In the same way, God declares this act of mercy forever. He wills this act of mercy forever um, outside of this event where he's communicating with Moses, right? And so in our communication with God, that's God's revelation to us. As we communicate with God, as we, particularly for us, is reading his word, right? And, and having things revealed to us in the word. But this communication between Moses and God is, a, is, a, is this umbrella moving around. Right, an umbrella moving around in the rainstorm, where we're experiencing, we're seeing different sides of God, but internally, inside of God, it's all the same. Does that make sense? So on this, since we kind of got into this, right? So yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. God is not in a bad shape or way, but he's 
<laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, and that's talking about the, for example, the draw near thing in James. It's like, if you think about your, I keep using water analogies, but if you think about your water faucet, right? So there's water running through the sewage, through the water lines all the time. But what happens when you turn the knob, right? The water that's already there, that's already flowing, comes out through your faucet, right? So... When God draws near, again, it's not, a, it's not that God is moving, right? Because for one, that's like not even a, a category for thinking about God, right? But in another sense, God is moving, right, towards you. Um, and so this is, part of this is a mystery, right? So it's going to be almost impossible to totally work out. But the difference is in this revelation. What, what God has revealed to Samuel is regret, Right? God has revealed this sense of regret so that Samuel, as a human who doesn't understand God, can comprehend what's actually going on in the world and going on in Israel with Saul. But then you come to, to Saul, right, and Samuel's talking to Saul, and it's, it's a different, he's speaking on theological terms um, about God as a, and kind of the same stuff we're talking about. He's talking about who God is in relation to Saul, right? And so the, the self-revelation of God to Samuel is different from the revelation of God to, to Saul because they're in different positions, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, so as believers, you have to have the, the spirit, I think, enlightened some of this because obviously mm-hmm. a skeptic is going to say, this is all confusing and friction. Uh-huh. So what do you say to that? Um, well, I don't think it is. <laughs> I mean, and in fact, you know, this is not even a, not even atheists, right? Um, there are a lot of, of Christians that struggle with this. Yes. And um, I think that, for example, that kind of a, a popular thing to think today, and we'll get to this with divine simplicity in a minute, but a popular thing among Reformed evangelicals today is to say that um, the immutability of God, the unchangeability of God is in his essence, right? God's essence doesn't change, but... Um, as his attributes are expressed to us, those are changing, right? There are problems with that we'll talk, we'll talk about in a minute, but uh, this is not something that, that just um, we struggle with. In fact, let's, let's go ahead and talk about that. Um, divine simplicity, that's exactly um, what it sounds like. Well, maybe not, I don't know, but <laughs> 
Divine simplicity is basically the idea that God is not made up of parts, right? So divine simplicity means no parts. Um, so for example, as a human, there are certain things I need to be a human. If you take off my head, if you cut out my heart, I'm no longer a human, right? Uh, same thing with, you know, we can talk about my dog. You know, if you take off, if, if you shave her fur, you take off all four of her legs, and you add gills and a tail, right? Is that a dog anymore? Maybe you would say yes if you were, you know, into some weird experiments, but probably not, right? And so most things in our life are made up of parts where, you know, if we have this hymnal has pages, right? And it's one thing, but it has parts. Um, but we can get to the level of, like, subatomic particles, right? And we, there's a purity there. Um, in the same way, you could maybe talk about, as this would, you know, freak out some science nerds in the world, but water, like pure water, is not made up of parts. You can't divide up your, the water into, you know, chunks. And, you know, you can, you can divide it up, but it's, you know, something is, that's pure, right? So if, if you take a chunk out, it's, it's still water. So we talk about God is um, simple. The primary claim is that he's not composed of parts because to be composed of parts is to be dependent on something, right? So as a human, I depend on my head. If you take off my head, I'm not a human anymore, right? That's something essential to humanity. If you take off my dog's legs and give her a tail, right, she's not a, a dog anymore because that's something that's essential to dogginess, right? And so this, this comes from and is related to the discussion of being we had earlier where we talked about last week how God's essence and existence are the same thing. When we're about to, in just a second, I'm, I'm probably going to try to get there as quick as possible. We're going to turn to Exodus 3 and talk about God's name, right? But part of the thing that's going on in God's name is there's actually this implication that um, God is so self-sufficient that he doesn't get his existence from anywhere else, that his, that his existence is part of his essence, right? And a, a summary statement that some have used to, to describe this idea is that all that is in God is God. All that is in God is God. Now, that's not true of you, right? All that is in Reed is not Reed, right? Um, if you, again, if you take out, you know, one of my organs, and you say, is this Reed? No, right? There's a, the whole is greater than the parts. But because God doesn't have parts... You can't do that. You can't take something, you can't look at a discrete chunk of God, if that's even a possibility, and say, is this God? And say, no, right? Which is why, you know, the doctrine of the Trinity bears this out. You can't pull out Jesus, for example, and say, you know, this isn't God, now that I've pulled it out because Jesus is God, right? And that's coming from this doctrine of divine simplicity. Um, this is, again, this is an area where a lot of Reformed evangelicals today will struggle. There's lots of debates going on in the, you know, world theology right now about this. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to dwell on it too much. Um, 
Because I think when we get to Exodus 3, we'll make things clearer. But the implication of that is that all of God's attributes are the same. So there's, there's no real distinction, at least in God. Again, we're talking about the difference between what's in God and what's outside of God. At least in God, there's no real distinction between God's love and God's justice. Right? Um, and this is what, you know, you hear you know, fanciful descriptions of hell where it's like, well... Heaven and hell is really the same, but we're all kind of experiencing God, but it's about a relationship with God, right? Um, which I'm not going to speculate on that. But So in the same way, God's love is his justice, is his holiness. So all of, all of his attributes are the same. Again, people struggle with that, but you've got to understand that our, our experience is of discrete attributes, right? So we experience God's love on its own, uh, but that's about our relationship with God, right? So, whether I experience the wrath of God or the love of God is dependent upon my orientation to and relationship with God. So, we're talking about an external experience of God, not something that's going on inside God. So, the, the key point, though, is that just to talk about immutability and following from that, divine simplicity, isn't just to speak about God's essence. So, for example, our essence doesn't change, right? So if you talk about God, God doesn't change essentially. Well, if you were immortal, then you wouldn't change essentially. Like the, the who you are doesn't change. Um, and so we need to say something more than that in order to speak about God. And the answer goes down to this being thing where God is his, his own essence. He is his own existence, right? Um, and so... You, you will hear things like that where people will say, well, God's essence is unchanging. But in fact, well, nobody's essence is changing, right? Unless you, you know, light me on fire and burn me into a pile of ashes. Like, <laughs> my essence hasn't changed. So, um, yeah, I'm not going to dwell on that much longer. Um, that's a very difficult concept, and I, I'm hoping... Um, now we're going to turn to Exodus 3, and I'm hoping as we look at Exodus 3 that some of this will become a little bit clearer. Uh, but I just wanted to give you those categories before we got there to, to kind of think about that and chew on it. So um, Exodus 3, uh, starting in verse 14, this is the burnt episode of the burning bush. We read it a couple weeks ago um, in this Bible study. But Moses is in the wilderness of Midian. He's taking care of the flocks of his father-in-law. And he wanders across this bush that is burning, but doesn't burn up. And as it turns out, God is in the bush. So God is in the fire, technically speaking. So God says, come here, take off your sandals, come near, and I'll talk to you. And then God tells him, all right, I'm going to send you back to Egypt, and your job is to bring them out. And as, as you know, Moses makes these excuses, and he's you know, struggling with, you know, he, do, he obviously doesn't want to do it. And so this is one of his last ditch efforts to get out of this whole situation. So actually start in verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. 
And he said, and God said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, that's Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This being Yahweh is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So we've come to, at, at what we just left a second ago with immutability, divine simplicity, and all that, we've come to the limits of natural revelation. And we kind of, there's other things we could pull out there, but that's basically all we can know about God through natural revelation, which I think is quite a lot. Um, but God in Exodus 3 is revealing something that we can only know through special revelation, something that we can only know by God's special um, giving it to us, and that's his name. So, and actually, we'll talk about this in just a second too, but God actually has two names here. He, he draws out two different things, but first let's talk about God's covenant name, Yahweh. Now, actually, when you see in verse 14, it says, I am who I am. The, the name actually isn't there in the form that we see it throughout the, the Bible. Um, it says, Ayeh, Asher, Ayeh, which is, you can hear like the similarity with the Ayeh thing. Um, but it is, it, it's like it's translated. I am who I am. I am who I am. And so this, this play on God's name is a signal of all the things we just talked about. And so one of the things that God is doing Although a lot of those, those categories and concepts would not have been fully formed when Moses was talking to God at this point. But part of what God is doing is saying, the God of the world, the God of all things, who is self-sufficient, who is unchanging, who is immortal, that God, that's who I am. And so this name, I am who I am, is totally self-referential. It's not dependent on anything else. It's totally um, caught up in who God is. It's also interesting, this is, I don't know how much we should read into this, but um, you could also translate this, I will be who I will be. Um, again, I'm, I'm not sure how much I want to buy into that. Hebrew, they don't have like present, past, future tense like we do. Um, they have different verb stems. And so this is a call imperfect stem. Um, and so imperfect basically means that it's, that it's not finished yet. So you could translate this in the future tense, and I would normally translate a call imperfect in the future tense if I were translating um, any passage. But uh, So it's a very simple construction, right? He's just saying, I am, which doesn't sound like much. But if you think back to what we're talking about with being, right? Being is to be. And the singular form of that is I am. To be, I am. And so Moses, uh, God is claiming in his name, in his covenant name, that he is this one who is self-sufficient, who is over all. And so this is, this is a special revelation of God's being, namely that God is being himself, he's uncaused, he's self-sufficient, and he's simple. But there's another name in here. So God has revealed this transcendent name, this great covenant name. We may talk about it more next week. Um, this, this name that describes the majesty and the greatness and the imminence of God. Then he also says, in verse 15, he says, Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, 
the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And so we have this big transcendent name. And then within that, secondary to that, God identifies points in history. And he says, I'm this transcendent God who's uncaused, who's simple, who's all these big things we've been talking about. But I'm also the God that came to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I'm the God that was involved in their lives and was involved in their redemption. And after the book of Exodus, as we get into like the Ten Commandments, for example, in Exodus 20, the first commandment begins with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. And so God's covenant name is almost always tied with some historical event. We'll see this a lot. The Lord your God, the Lord who brought you out of, out of Egypt, the Lord your God, the Lord Godfather of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so the covenant name of God, this transcendent, big, imminent thing, is paired with something that's really close to us. So God's, the technical words are transcendence and imminence. His farness, his bigness, but also his nearness to us are always paired together in Scripture. That is not something you can get from natural revelation, right? That's what Paul is talking about when Paul gets to Acts 17. And we read, it, we read this last week, but Paul is, is talking about the God who they're grasping after. And they, they have this idea that he's far off, and he says, no, this God that you're grasping at or that, that you, you can't find is actually near to all of us. And so God's names tell us that he is transcendent and imminent, but all, transcendent over all things, but also that he is deeply involved in history and deeply involved in the world. And what's more, he's a father. And that's what, if you think about our, our creeds, we talk about the, the Apostles' Creed starts with, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. God, the Father Almighty. And so we have those two things paired together. God's eminence is transcendence. Or God's eminence with an E in transcendence. And God's closeness and fatherhood over us. And so God's covenant name comes down to us and it takes a particularly redemptive uh, tone where it's not just God creator, although that's, a, that's there, right? It's not, just, um, it's, it's not just God who's with you, although that's there. It's God who's, who's redeeming you, who's bringing you out of Egypt, who's calling your people together and, and laying claim to a people. And so there's a dual reality, and there's also a dual reality built into the fatherhood of God. Um, we'll talk about that next week when we get to the Trinity. But this is, this is the, the glory of special revelation here, right? We can learn a whole lot about God through just looking at his works, through thinking logically, through, through um, philosophizing. And there's merit to that because we can find common ground in those things. But ultimately, to have a God who saves us, to have a God who um, is near to us, we need this special revelation. We need his fatherhood. So... I'm going to stop there because the, the next thing is the Trinity. So I don't want to uh, dive into that with 10 minutes left. So, <laughs> But are there any questions, comments, thoughts? We asked this question last week. Um, but particularly given this Exodus 3 thing, does this give you comfort or does this concern you? Is this a positive thing or a negative thing?
And there's, there's something, and this is part of the kind of response to this that people struggle with. Is when we talk about God is, in all these terms, that God is simple, he's immutable, he's self-sufficient. That can, that, that scares people in, in a way, right? And I think that that's where the impulse to reduce God down is. And, and in fact, if you, if you think about the kind of God that like the most common atheist arguments would argue against. It's not a God that's like this, that's transcendent and big, right? It's a God that's, that's a part of our universe, right? And I think part of that is that we, we struggle with something this big. But God's answer to that is not to like separate us and get us far away. God's answer to that is to bring us really close and to save us and redeem us. And so, anything else? Thank you. 
Well, that's what, that's what Romans 1 is, right? It's a, it's a looking at, the, at God, knowing he's there, knowing what he's like, just from the, the way that the world works, right? Um, and this is, the Greek philosophers did this. They, they reasoned just based on basic facts about life to the existence of this transcendent God that we've been talking about. But because that scares, our impulse is to make idols, right? Our impulse is to, to look at that and go, I'm not interested in that. Because that is big and scary, and so I'm going to make something that's small. Um, but God's answer to that is not, you know, again, it's not to separate us from him, but it's to bring, it, bring us near and to reveal himself to us and change us so that we can actually stand in light of that without being destroyed uh, by his holiness. So, anyway, let me pray, and we can head out. Father, thank you uh, for your word, for your revelation to us. For your name. Father, we thank you that you uh, give us a name to call you by. You give us your name, Yahweh. That you give us your name, Father. And allow us to draw near to you and be a part of your family, to be adopted into your, uh, into your church. Father, would you protect us and remind us of your presence and of your redemption for us? Do you remind us that you are the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that you're the God that brought us out of Egypt, that you're the God who sent his son to die for us and to redeem us? Would you remind us of that daily, and would you help us to live in light of that, to live in light of your glory and live in light of your revelation to us? We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I need to stop that.